One size fits all. We all love a good one size fits all because we know that it never actually seems to work when it comes to reality. So the question becomes exercise wise. We, I think all of the therapists feel pretty comfortable that one size does not fit all. But the question becomes when you look at individuals programs, are you differentiating yourself from just a standardized one size fits all program that you might find on the internet? In particular, when it comes to something common such as, say, plantar fasciitis, where some docs don't even think you should go to therapy. They just say, do these stretches from this handout, slap a $500 orthotic on it, and all will be bright and dandy for you. So we're going to dive into what are you doing to differentiate yourself from page one of Google. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. For those who have not figured out quite yet, this is Paul Joined again by Dan Mirioski. Hello. As well as the one Jen Lee. What up? And Jen, congratulations. We're coming up on a full year of your time with the practice performance team at Spooner. We've been at Spooner for much longer than that, but we're glad that we have not scared you away yet and that you have brought great skill to our team and great needed skill to our team. Thank you. There have been times I've questioned it, but yeah. you know. You've made a good decision. <laughs> we support we support you. As well as our, our favorite Texan therapist, who we're sad is not with us here, but glad he can be with us for the podcast, Andrew Walquist. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. So, for today, we're going to be discussing plantar fasciitis. As I mentioned in the intro, we looked at some good Google results, and I just searched your common terms, physical therapy for plantar fasciitis, exercises for plantar fasciitis, things along those lines, and we just did a little compilation of what were the most common results, because we all know that no one has the slightest clue what exists after page one of Google results. We assume patients are going to be looking right at those first initial exercises that come up. For those wondering, the vast majority were your typical Stretch of the calf. We had everything from sitting in a chair, pulling your calf up with some sort of cord, band, etc., to your typical wall stretch, both the runner's variant, uh, gastroc and soleus, the towel stretch. A uh, couple had the plantar fasciitis stretch. We have your foot up against the wall, bringing the toe back, um, as well as a couple of hip strengthening things and a couple of resisted band exercises in all directions, plus your typical ice the plantar fascia, roll the plantar fascia, massage the, massage the plantar fascia. So we're just going to break it down. I want to talk about these first and just see what you guys' thoughts are. So one of the main, one of the first things that popped up on the Google results was actually a prone hip extension and a side-lying hip abduction for the individual. And I think Dan pointed out they recommended two sets of 15. Just curious what you guys' thoughts are on that directly relating to plantar fasciitis. Well, I kind of see where they're going with it because whenever you're technically going to engage your plantar fascia, it's when you're pushing off during gait, and that's typically what people start to lose whenever they're, you know, acutely painful there. So they're going for getting hip extension like push off. They're going for hip abduction, just like what happened with push off and gait. The problem with that, from my perspective, would be you're not actually weight bearing on your any of your joints you're not getting the proper proprioception through your hip and and engaging it in that way and your ankle is probably more likely going to be not in dorsiflexion maybe in plantar flexion or neutral during that time um so it's not completely functional i see where it could be beneficial for the hip itself but not my favorite 
So, I mean, you know, to kind of tie into that as well, I mean, I could see it being plausibly used if somebody's really acute and they're having a significant amount of pain and weight bearing. So you may say, well, at least it's better than doing nothing related to the glutes, um, especially, you know, in that prone position. But I mean, it's one of those that if they come in and they say, hey, I'm doing this, probably all that I'm going to change is say, okay, two sets of 15 isn't significant enough. So we're going to up that to probably two to 3,000 and they're going to look at me and say that I'm crazy and I'm going to say, I'm, while I might might look a little funny and crazy, um, that's actually probably the, the frequency and the duration that you would need to do that for uh, as long as it's not putting any undue stress across their, their lumbar spine. Two to 3,000 in one sitting, Dan, or across the expanse of the day? Probably across the expanse of the day. I agree with you on the the volume because you are going to engage that tissue a lot more. But I would say if it's an acutely painful situation and you don't want them weight bearing on the plantar fascia, if we go back to our tweakology series that we did before, you can use other positions like tall kneeling, like half kneeling, things like that to get them off their feet and still engage them in the closed chain. But I would agree with Jane completely. The, the more the more we can urge them towards function, the better. But again, like Dan said, there might be instances where it's appropriate or you just might have that patient that maybe they're unable to kneel on their knee. Maybe they're just motorly challenged to the point where it's not going to be successful. So times are going to apply it, but I agree completely. If we can get them anywhere closer to function, that would certainly be my preference personally. I like the phrase motorly challenged. I'm trying to be more politically correct here in 2019, you know, keep it it more appropriate for the young listeners out there. Love it. Yep. It's funny um, when I first saw I this. I love everything that you guys have. I'm oh, sorry. Right. I love everything that you guys have said about, about putting people in uncomfortable positions. On the surface, I actually like the concept of the exercises. I hope that someone that is not in the medical industry who has plantar foot pain that they look at an exercise and I hope they say, oh, "Wait a minute, how does this hip exercise really help my foot?" So I love like the little segue that those exercises give. I had a patient that came to me and said. Yeah, I pulled up some of these exercises, and I have no idea why I'm doing this exercise. For my hip, how does that help my foot? I love that conversation that will follow. And being like, well, the hip is related to the foot very intimately. And and, and while I like the concept of this exercise, I love doing this kind of exercise and these other tweaks that you guys just mentioned. Because on the surface, I think it's kind of fun to think about how a patient might finally be drawing connections that the whole body is connected and that you can use another part of the body that isn't injured to augment the injured part of the body. And I love where you went with that, Andrew. I mean, it's a great example of take what's maybe not the most beneficial thing in the entire world, but turn it into a positive, turn it into a teaching experience where you can show, again, we talked about, can you show your skill, your expertise, show your knowledge base, explain to the patient how the hip relates to their plantar fascia how the hip mobility and mechanics can impact their foot, can impact the pain that they're having. And one, you're going to make them a better individual as they understand more. But two, you're kind of establishing your credibility as a health expert and especially a movement specialist. So I love taking that opportunity and kind of flipping it on its head there. That's that's a great strategy for sure. Absolutely. Great job. So I, I think our general consensus is, you know, it's kind of nice they have those in there. I was kind of pleased when I first saw I was like, oh, not just the foot. I'm surprised. But I think it's kind of one of those nice try slugger. Here's a participation award for you. Um, you, you didn't quite get the prime route, but it's, it's going the right direction. Good job, buddy. So 
moving on mobility wise with it when it comes to stretches it was pretty consistent across the board your typical runner stretch up against the wall i saw both the gastroca and soleus variations your knee bent knee straight variations of it uh your typical long sitting towel stretch um a number of different stretches for the gastroc for the soleus all static uh, as well as some plantar fascial stretches was what they were terming them specifically, where basically it's just a typical calf stretch with the addition of great toe extension. So let's dig into those. What do you guys feel about those exercises being prescribed to the individual? You know, I, I very commonly see across uh, our clinic those static gastroc stretches being prescribed. Um, gastroc soleus, whether it's on a slant board, whether it's against a wall, whether it's on a pro stretch. Um, but, you know, from from learning from Tim Spooner and Andrew and Jen and a number of other people, adding that component of an opposite leg swing, I think makes it a lot more applicable and more related to the person's individual function, whether they walk for exercise or they run or you could even argue when they bike, right? Because of how their toe may be positioned in a clip, they're actually going to have changing angles of their Achilles during their upstroke and downstroke. Um, so adding that opposite leg swing in the sagittal plane, like a, like a knee driver towards their chest or, or slightly you know anterior towards their chest, side to side and then that rotational component, you know, as we think about the mechanics of the foot, adding those things in, makes a lot of sense to start getting the rudder or the calcaneus moving uh, and starting to free up some of that tension through that Achilles sheath that comes down into the, the calcaneal fat pad that then comes into the plantar fascia. Um, so while I don't necessarily disagree with those, again, I think that there's just a slight modification we can make to make those stretches a little bit more powerful and specific to the patient's tissue. Yeah, I agree. Um, and to kind of add to that, I mean, the two, in my mind, there's two big reasons in the foot that this would happen. The first would be, okay, somebody's got a super, super rigid foot. They're really supinated. Their foot doesn't want to move at all. If that's the case, most of the time, the first ray, the big toe, is actually plantar flexed down, and it's stuck, and it can't move, which is going to inhibit the plantar fascia anyway. Um, the other case would be, if you have a hypermobile foot, somebody super pronated um, or externally rotated, and that foot can never engage whenever you're going into what I would call phase two or actually pushing off and gate. But both both of those situations, you're going to have limited dorsiflexion or ability to pull that ankle up or leave it behind you whenever you're walking. So I understand the reason for prescribing those specific exercises. But like you said, Dan, you know, if you're going to get them in that position. If you're going to do that stretch, you need to replicate successfully what the foot is actually going to do and gate at that point. And it's not just sagittal plane. It's not just forward. You want to actually get it to the point where you're actually getting into a supination moment, or if that's too painful for somebody trying to find like going back again to the tweakology thing, trying to find what ranges of motion are successful for somebody and in, in going in the most successful plane and the most successful range of motion with leg swings or whatever it may be. I kind of like what you said there, Jen, about finding that successful range of motion. And it's that Dan mentioned about using the knee or the hip as a driver to get more than just sagittal plane. So there's plenty of times I've seen people with plantar fasciitis that one of those tweaks might actually exacerbate their symptoms. And so that's a good 
um, case for me to say, okay, I'm not going to go down that path or really um, design exercises that, that encourage that range of motion, at least not yet, but then definitely go down the more successful path. And so is that static gastroc stretch or plantar stretch, is that really teaching you how they move in upright function? And, and so the more that you get a person to move authentically as they move in gait, the more you'll recognize, oh, yeah, this is the path I want to go down or this is the path i got to stay away from or else I risk them having an acute exacerbation of their pain. Right. I'm just curious uh, here. Sorry, go ahead, Jen. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I take it back to any and every patient that I ever treat for any diagnosis. I'm always wondering, why is this happening? Not what is happening, but why is this happening? That is our job as doctors of physical therapy is to figure out, based off of the whole chain, why would this particular foot or both feet be irritated and to be able to think through the whole global mechanics of it. And that's, no, frankly, not something that Google can do. No, no, you're definitely correct. I'm curious here. I I think we're hearing good consistency, and I'm right along with you guys. I want to get something moving dynamically. I don't, the plantar fascia doesn't exist in a static world. I want to at least get some sort of leg swing, something happening, get some transverse plane calcaneal mobility, and better replicate actual gait mechanics. We still work on some motion there. Um, But I'm curious for you guys. Do you, any of you prescribe these static stretches in addition? Sheer dynamic stretches with regularity. I'm sure you've all done it once, but do you guys do it with regularity or are you just all dynamic and don't even worry about these existing? You know, I'll say I, I usually do a combination of both where I'll allow them to do the static component, um, get comfortable and then add a dynamic load. Um, also, depending on the individual, if I really see that they have a lack of a posterior glide of their talus, uh, I may give them some sort of, of, of strap or belt or something to control that talus and pull it posteriorly, whether it's in the front leg of gait or the back leg of gait. Uh, and, and I found that that has really good success for the patient. And then they can kind of maybe use a, a rolled up towel or something like that to more specifically isolate, you know, the medial tailor dome or the lateral tailor dome, going back to Jen's position or discussion about uh, how their foot is in, you know, do they have a, do they have a supinated foot or do they have a compensated supinated foot, AKA what most people would call a pronated foot. Um, but really, you know, I think there's a couple of different ways we could look at that, but that, that may be something else in addition to just the static component, adding a, a band resistance, whether it's a belt or a, you know, a, a, a rogue band or something like that to give just a little bit of, of tailor blocking. Yeah, you bring up a good good point. I mean, they give all of these stretches. I think people naturally, they just kind of naturally gravitate to, oh, my Achilles is tight. Oh, my calf is tight. Not necessarily. You may have neural tension in the medial plantar nerve. You may have a joint restriction, right, you know, around the tailor dome, what you're talking about. Like, you may not get a posterior, tilt or posterior glide of the talus into dorsiflexion. So there are times I would do a static stretch. If I want to get a capsular stretch, yeah, I would put a band around it. I would hold them there a little bit longer. You would see that. And more of my manual interventions as well, but it really depends on what you're, what tissue you're going for, in my opinion. I like it. I like it. So, looking at the next set of exercises, we're going to wander into the world of some of the typical recommendations you hear with plantar fasciitis: towel scrunches, marble pickups, rolling ice bottles, um, <clears throat> plantar fascial massage those usual types, whether it's rolling golf ball, rolling on frozen water bottle, etc. 
Where do you guys stand on those? Did you mean to say where do you stand on them? That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. No, no, no. Which just makes me think of a patient that I had that he couldn't understand why his foot hurt uh, because, you know, he just started some uh, magnetic kind of therapy and me thinking that he had an insole with uh, some magnets kind of implanted and I see some more products like that. No, he just really stuck two magnets in his in his foot, and it's like like ball magnets. He's, he's literally walking on marble. I mean, you you can't make that up. But I mean, and to look at him and, and try not to laugh and say, oh um, I you know I think that you know this magnetic therapy might not be for you. Let's try some of these things. Anyway, so so back to your original question, Paul. I really think that the biggest question that I have that are you treating the actual condition, or are you just treating the symptoms of the condition? Are you really getting to the why of some of those things? And back to your introduction where you said is, you know, that a lot of exercises are permissible. Like, you can do them, that there's nothing inherently wrong with them. Are you really getting at the root of the issue there? And that would be my consideration with the exercises you just mentioned. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any problem, and I will do any and all of those if I find it justifiable at that moment with that patient you know if it's if they roll on a frozen or sit on ice pack or roll on a frozen water bottle so it's numb and then they can actually tolerate some more stretching or mobilization from me or you know the the towel grip or the marble pickup to me most people are probably thinking okay it's intrinsic strengthening quote-unquote of the foot for me I'm thinking okay I'm probably I'm going to get some frontal plane mobility of the midfoot here as they're trying to pick it up with their big toe and that's what I'm wanting for the specific um, patient depending on how their foot's moving or not moving and how I want to try to influence that yeah I would say in addition to that I mean there's a there's some research that's come out that's talked about the importance of the short foot stabilizers and the short foot exercises which one could argue that towel pickup and marble pickup and all that stuff is, is part of that. Um, but I would say if you're going to do it, I would encourage them to try and do it in standing and try and engage that short foot. Um, you know, I think that depending on, you know, going back to the root cause, like Andrew and Jen have talked about, you know, if it's the patient that comes in that gets it at, at mile three when they walk or at mile six when they run versus they get it all the time, I think then you could say, well, is this, is it, is it a muscular endurance thing? Is it a glide and slide of tissue that maybe we have to manually free up? Or we have to really think about the dosage of our exercises to say, are you doing enough volume of this to really help provide dynamic stability to your foot? Um, so again, I wouldn't necessarily say no to those exercises, but I think I would really question the, the dosage of them. Um, and then add a bunch of other things because, you know, assuming that it's not an acute flare-up of, you know, they went from zero mileage to 30 mileage, right? Like, okay, well, we can figure that out. But um, otherwise, I, I'm going to be start, start to look into at different locations other than just localized at the foot. Right. So I'm, I'm hearing... I think I've... Um, oh, go ahead. You're okay. Go for it. Um, I was just going to say... In- Sometimes I've had this happen before where it's actually on the prescription. The doctor said to do these exercises. Um, I've learned through failure, like most things, just start out that way. You know, gain the patient's trust. Do the exercises the doctor wants you to do right away. Over time, you can justify, okay, 
that was okay for now. This is what these exercises are doing. This is what I see in your total movement. This is how I correlate it to everything that's going on with you based off of the total body analysis that you and I went through together. And that's why we're going to move on from this exercise to these more functional exercises when it's possible. Um, just to make sure everybody, all parts are happy. I think that is great advice. I get that question from PT students and new grads all the time. What do I do when the doctor gives specific exercises he wants to have done and they're just not really cutting to what I truly think is the mechanical deficit for them? And you gave an excellent answer. You can give them the exercises. Most often, they're not harmful. I will give them to them all day one on the initial evaluation. I'll give them a handout and pictures if they needed, and it becomes their home exercise program instantly. We do it one time to make sure they're doing it right, and then it is done at home for their and for all future purposes. And I will continue to build as is appropriate with what I think they need and have that same discussion that you had. Because that way, all parties win. The patient's going to yep. ultimately get the skill that I need to provide them with, but I'm not going to try to get into a any sort of argument with the doctor, with the patient, with anything else, we're just, we're not going to come out ahead. Or if we do, there's going to be too many casualties along the road to make it worth it. So yep. for the last sets of exercises, I'm just going to kind of move for the sake of time. I think we're going to have the same consistent answer. When we look at open chain, resisted, plantar flexion, eversion, dorsiflexion, all those good things, I think we can all agree. They have their purpose. They have their point. There might be a deficit, but it's probably not truly getting to the skill we need to provide some mechanical problems this person has or whatever it is we're trying to establish to get less stress across that plantar fascia. So I want to dig into the actual meat and potatoes here of looking at plantar fasciitis. We talked about establishing our skill, establishing what we are as movement specialists. You guys have already breached into a lot of these areas with the things we talked about. But what what else are we looking at? With a plantar fasciitis complaint comes in, what across the chain are you assessing? What are you looking at? Where's your head going? And how are you differentiating yourself from these Google results we just talked about? So I'll just... I think this is when everybody starts to salivate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just start at one spot that I think we feel somewhat comfortable treating it from from a from an entry level PT standpoint, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to expand and treat it in a lot of different ways, and that's looking at the rear foot relative to the midfoot. Um, so that's probably one of the main places I'm going to look at is I'm going to look at what's their rear foot mobility in all phases of gait. So does it have the ability to invert and evert in dorsiflexion, neutral, and plantar flexion, um, and then. How are those, what happens to the midfoot mobility related to the rear foot mobility in each of those positions? Um, one other important structure that I usually palpate, thanks to the tutelage of, of Brent Yamasha and Greg Johnson from the Institute of Physical Art, I'll give them a little shout out, is looking at fat pad mobility. I'm looking at calcaneal fat pad mobility because a lot of times, at least in my experience, when a patient comes in with quote unquote plantar fasciitis, uh, you'll see a connection into their calcaneal fat pad, um, which can be successfully mobilized, and that can assist greatly in unlocking rear foot uh, rear foot mobility. So that's that's one place I would say I commonly commonly look at as a culprit, fairly close to uh, the location of plantar fasciitis. But I'm curious to hear Jen and, and Andrew's thoughts. I just want to jump in real quick too and just talk anatomy wise. It's so important. Like you said, we look at typically associate a lot of times plantar fasciitis with the tight, you know, gastroxoleus tight calf muscles. And we know that obviously contributes to continuation of fascia, etc. But what happens when you have a tight gastroxoleus? It 
pulls our calcaneus into a partially inverted position. It's just naturally what happens based on its insertion point, which is going to limit eversion and going to lack that rear foot mobility Dan is talking about. And even looking at the midfoot too, and not just assuming that just because you have this midfoot drop or they like to pronate too much, they're putting stress on plantar fascia, guarantees that their entire midfoot is all hypermobile. I can't tell you how many times they, someone, they look at someone statically stand, they say navicular is dropped, so they have a hypermobile midfoot. There is more things in the midfoot than the navicular bone the last time I checked. Do not make the yep. mistake of assuming that because one thing might move where you don't want it to, the entire structure is hyper. You might miss a lot of hypo sections that are putting a lot of extra stress on that navicular region. Well said. Yep. I think for me, um, whenever I'm just taking a look, at, I mean, I try to focus on their function. Most people that have special issues, or at least when they come to me, one of the biggest complaints, and I hope you guys would agree to me, is walking, especially those first few steps in the morning or after a period of, of inactivity. So the first thing I like is to see how they walk. And while I do love to look at a lot of the rear foot, forefoot mechanics in that, a lot of times whenever I have them walk, I can, I can see a whole lot of dysfunction or potential issues that I need to double click on and, and look further in. So what we were saying earlier, how I love to do some of those exercises that patients come in regarding the hip, I love to look at the hip. I even look, like to look at how much their thoracic spine on and how much their chest moves. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to think that you can have someone that with a rotational deficit in their thoracic spine, that they're not exactly doing the reciprocal motion of gait, which will lead them to be in a more pronated position down the chain, which that can exacerbate their symptoms. And if you're not addressing their, their ability to have that reciprocal chest motion arm swing, you might not ever be able to get to the root of the issue. So I don't know if I necessarily have a cookie-cutter way, a, a linear way that I always assess motion. But I, what I love to do is just stick with where they are having difficulty with, for a lot of people, such as walking, and then just go from there, see what my, see what my eyes see, see, see what the body tells me. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I would say I don't necessarily have a cookie cutter way of assessing it either, but I always think the body is so smart, it has the ability to compensate and find the path of least resistance. So you're going to see compensations through mobility or inability to stabilize, um, especially if you're looking at both phases of gait. How well are you able to load into it? How, how well are you able to explode off of that foot? And you can't really effectively look at that without looking up the chain. So I'm, I'm constantly looking into the hip, the pelvis, um, even up into the thoracic spine like he was talking about because it all is connected and you're going to find somewhere there's a reason why this person has started to compensate um, and inhibit the plantar fascia because of that. And I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but Jen, what about visceral and neural contributions to that movement? And we talk about looking at the chain, but the chain is not just orthopedic motion, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing I could say about that without literally going down the rabbit hole <laughs> is nerves and, and visceral organs are always going to trump muscles and joints. Like your body is going to protect those at all costs and that's going to cause compensation. So that's one of our you know, in my opinion, one of our expertise is one of the reasons people should come into therapy. You need to be able to differentiate, is this neural? Is this a neural tension that's causing this all the way down the chain? And now they're, you know, stuck in inversion of the calcaneus because they can't get proper mobility of that nerve. Um, or do they seriously have a lot of dysfunction going on in their visceral system 
to where they can't activate their core. And now they don't get that proper rotation. They can't activate that. And then, and then all the way down the chain, it's going to be affected just like Andrew was talking about. So huge, huge point. Just a quick patient example. I have a friend. Well, I guess actually we all have a friend because she works here. She's a physical therapist. She at least tolerates Dan. She's friends with the rest of us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) she had plantar fascial issues for i'm probably gonna forget it's somewhere between a year and two years there's a long period of time and she tried to self-treat which again is another rabbit hole we don't want to go down now but did all of your typical plantar fascial work but kept dynamic things going did a good job of what i think treatment should be just could never quite get it under control until she had her coccyx treated had her coccyx treated one time and lo and behold getting things more appropriate there. And she had a very significant history through the area, just so everyone's aware. Um, plantar fascial issues were suddenly much more addressable with your typical plantar fascial things. So when we're looking at where the viscera attaches, where the pelvic floor attaches, where the nerves are going to have to run through, how that can combine the entire chain, anything putting stress on that sciatic nerve running down, it could keep tension through that entire dural tissue and not let it move. And no different than when Jen talks about, you know, do they have enough great toe extension and dorsiflexion to actually get an appropriate stretch or some of the stretches we had earlier, whether it's a plantar flex first ray, a, you know, a lacking mobility through the Taylor dome, etc., or just quite frankly, neuromobility is lacking. You can't get dorsiflexion. You're never going to teach that body part how to move where it needs to actually move to be efficient in motion. Yep. So, so I think that consistently what I'm seeing with everything here is a lot of our our specialty needs to lie within the range of not treating the symptoms but treating the actual problem you know most of these exercises seem to help with either symptom management or small pieces of the picture but maybe it doesn't actually say okay so we need to get that gastroc moving well why wasn't the gastroc moving in the first place what about what in the hip what somewhere else wasn't doing it and our our ability to differentiate our services and not just be a googleable result lies in our ability to assess full body motion and not just say, oh, this tissue is angry. Let me make this tissue less angry. It's this tissue is angry. Let me remove as many or all factors that I can that put stress on that tissue. Is that a agreeable thought or where do you guys lie here? Yeah, I agree. And most of the pictures, you know, if you're going to look on Google or you're going to look on WebMD, um, they're going to show you the same exercise, but not everybody's the same. I could have a golfer. I could have a tennis player. I could have somebody just has seen with walking. Um, these don't look different. You're giving, it's like a conveyor belt of giving the same exercise to the same. People don't want to be treated like everybody else. They want individualized treatment. They want to have an actual human connection. That's why people should, should come to therapy for us. Yeah, I would say that... Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> that... When it comes to that, a lot of public, a lot of people probably treat this in the sagittal plane, and they stay in the sagittal plane. Um, for me, when I when I step back and I think of all the wisdom that Andrew's taught me about evaluating a flow sheet and seeing how much of my exercise is in one plane versus another, when I feel like I'm struggling with somebody who, let's say, they've had acute plantar fascia, uh, a pain from from getting back into walking or running too much too quickly, right? That the rule of twos, right? Too much too soon, too quick. Um, that I, when I feel like I, I, I've plateaued or they've plateaued and I look at their exercise prescription, I feel like I've, I'm too much in the sagittal plane where I feel like personally for me and the patients that I've interacted with, when I go after the transverse plane, whether that's the calcaneus, the hips, the femur, 
the tibia, or even like Jen alluded to all the way up into the thoracic spine and, and making sure that they had, and Andrew referred to that reciprocation of gait um, is when I feel like I get actually greater and more success with those individual patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, from a patient standpoint, you know, that they are doing their best just to get better, you know, and so, so they will use whatever is at their disposal to really help them and, and to where if you're one of those therapists that, that when you reflect back onto your flow sheet and you see a lot of maybe Googleable results that people are trying, you know, you can go ahead and keep some of those if some of those are ones that you find that are effective. But I want to challenge you to say, are you just treating the symptoms, meaning are, are you going to discharge them and see them back in another month after they've resumed hiking or walking or whatever sports they're playing? You know, I want to challenge you just to look a little bit above and below where that plantar fasciitis pain is. What do you see in the knee? What do you see in the hip? If that's all you can, all your mind can grapple with, that is, that's fine. At least you're looking at, at the bigger picture. I, I've never met a single patient that, that didn't value me going a little bit more in depth, even if it led to nowhere. You can ask those questions. You can see how their body moves. You can see where they are challenged. And I think through that, patients will like to come back to you just because at least you're trying hard. At least you're doing a little bit better than what their, their Google search gave them. They will continue to come back because they know that you have the heart for them and you want the best, even if it's somewhere where you don't know where it's going to lead you or even if you're a little bit uncomfortable. So that is my biggest encouragement for you know, people that, that are listening that might be admittedly sticking with the Google realm, maybe sticking just with the fascial thing. It's okay to venture out and, and being bold with that. I think it'll teach you a whole lot and patients will value it. Yeah, I agree. I would say um, it's okay to use any and all of those exercises, especially at the beginning in an acute situation. But again, to harken back to our Tweakology podcast, it should look, your flow sheet should gradually start to look more functional, more natural, what did they tell you the first day that they can't do? What is their goal? I can't fill in the blank. Okay, so at the end of the day, at the end of their treatment, most of their exercises should look like walking, should should replicate golf and things like that. And so I would I would just say, don't go by the pain. Okay, I feel better. I've had five, six sessions. It's calmed down. Okay, good. You're good to go. No, challenge yourself. Look at the flow sheet. Did you actually functionally treat them or did you just go after the pain? And I think you guys hit on something that's so important there and was probably one of my biggest learning moments when I was first year of a physical therapist. I'd have patients come in and I think of a couple in particular that did really well and we got along great and they'd do get all better. And then six months later, they'd come back and they'd request me specifically. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm doing well. You're know, asking for me. But they kept coming back with the same problem. I'm looking at it thinking, well, I'm treating the shoulder and I'm looking at the scapula, I'm looking at the thoracic spine, I'm looking at the clavicle, I'm looking at everything that moves. And you kind of just have to step back and say, hold on, what, what are you doing at work? What are you doing in life? What is happening for you? And realize there's more than just the things that immediately impact the shoulder in the case of thinking, you know, but anything across the body and learning, are you really getting everything moving efficiently? So when they're doing their function, whatever that activity is, whatever is specific to them, as Jen said, their individual needs you can improve not just the local, but the entire global. And hopefully when they come back, it's just to deliver a nice little hello and not to return for anything that you've already seen them for before. So a very important lesson that was learned the hard way by me. And hopefully others can take this lesson and apply it more quickly. Right. 
So thank you guys for everything today. I love what we heard. Again, I think just really getting into that. Are we looking at the full chain? Are we demonstrating expertise? And don't be afraid, therapists out there, to talk to your patients. Sometimes it seems intimidating to have a plantar fascial patient come in and try to explain to them why you care how their thoracic spine moves. But being able to walk them through it and demonstrate the motion and and show them how the entire body functions is truly what's going to demonstrate our skill and our specialty and our understanding of human movement. And that's what's a necessity for us to really be successful physical therapists, at least within what I believe and what I think we've all heard here today. So before we leave you guys, does anyone have any final comment to wrap up they'd like to put forth? No, the only, nope, I'm good. The only thing I would say is uh, I hope you guys all tune in because we have a lot of great Google MD slash Google PT podcast planned for 2019 on a host of different uh, common diagnoses that are seen in the world of physical therapy. I hope that you took a couple treatment nuggets from, from today from the wisdom that you know we all shared um, to help your patients and yourself get better. So uh, stay tuned. I'm really looking forward to 2019 with with, with these three others and then bringing in some other special guests as well to join us on the Google MD series. Yes, and along those lines, if you guys have anything you would like us to talk about as far as a common diagnosis goes, you know where to reach us. Send an email to therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Otherwise, thank you all for joining us today. I hope everyone has an excellent day. Thanks.